December 2020. A good part of the world is at home in lockdown, trying to limit the spread of the coronavirus almost one year into the deadly pandemic. In India, Rachita Taneja is also at home. She is staying at her parents' place. She's having a regular evening. Maybe she's watching TV or chatting with her mother. At some point, her phone buzzes. There is a notification. Someone tagged her in a tweet. So far, nothing new, nothing weird. Rachita is a cartoonist, and her series Sanitary Panels, a feminist webcomic that comments on society, culture, and politics, has thousands of followers. Some days her phone is flooded with notifications. But the tweet she reads on this regular evening of December 2020 is different. It says that the Attorney General of India, Kotayan Katankot Venugopal, has consented for proceedings to start against her for three of her cartoons. The charge is contempt of court. And I had to read that five times for it to sink in. And I was like, what is happening? I didn't get a call. I didn't get an email. Is this real? I thought maybe it was, maybe someone wrongly tagged me or I wasn't reading it, right? But yeah, it was out of the blue and extremely sudden and shocking. My heart sank into my stomach for a second and then I called my lawyer immediately. I was like, okay, pull yourself together, call your lawyer friend. August 2020. This time we are in Jordan. Emad Ajaj publishes one of his cartoons on his Twitter account. Again, nothing exceptional. He is an experienced cartoonist with a big following and he posts several cartoons a week on his profiles. But this time, things take an unexpected turn very quickly. I got this phone from some security guy. He was very, very angry and he was talking with me in a very harsh language. And he was threatening on me all the time. So I just ignored the phone and I get some calls from a friend who urged me to, to cancel that cartoon or delete that tweet. I did so. I did cancel the tweet. Was cancelling the tweet enough? Did Ahmad act quickly enough? Later that afternoon, while he is driving with his wife outside of the capital Amman, he is stopped at a checkpoint. He is arrested. I was sent to the jail by the same night. It was a horrific time for me. The first time I was in jail, the first time I spent without my family, the first time you, you see things that you see in movies, or and now you are living them in, in real time. It was really, really difficult. While Ahmad is locked up without any knowledge about the charges he's confronting away from his family, scared, his case is moving. It is forwarded to the state security court and he is accused of violating provisions of the anti-terrorism and cybercrime laws. He risks 3 to 20 years of hard labor. 2020 again, Hungary, this time. On a regular Thursday of April, Gabor Papai sits at his desk. I draw every single day. 
So this was simply a Thursday drawing for me. And for a long time, I didn't even think it would have any effect. I don't even really like these drawings with just talking heads in them. One of the two characters in the cartoon is Cecilia Müller, a member of the government's coronavirus task force. The other one, that only listens to her, is Jesus Christ, drawn on the cross. Gabor doesn't know it yet, but this time he went too far for somebody. I am Emanuele Del Rosso, and this is Tough Love, a podcast dedicated to stories of cartoonists in danger, produced by Federica Testi and I. You are listening to the first of three episodes realized in collaboration with the international organization Cartooning for Peace, and with the support of the UNESCO GMDF and the Isocrates Foundation. We call these three episodes Tough Love, Tough Law. India, Jordan, Hungary. Traveling between New Delhi, Amman and Budapest, we find three different stories, three different political landscapes. We find three different law systems. But one commonality is evident. In these stories, the law has been misused to repress, censor and silence editorial cartoonists. Recent reports all mentioned in the notes to this episode, show evidence of a worrying growth in legal threats to journalists and cartoonists around the world, with governments and non-state actors building hostile legal environments that obstruct their work. The reason for this attitude is that cartoons have always been a very effective way to make the powerful angry. This has been true since the early days of news reporting. In a society with low levels of literacy, the masses could access news via editorial cartoons. Today, we would say they would go viral more easily than written news. For example, the corrupt boss Tweed, head of the infamous Tammany Hall ring in 19th century New York, reportedly said about the cartoons Thomas Nest was drawing about him on Harper's Weekly. Let's stop those damn pictures. I don't care so much what the papers write about me. My constituents can read. But damn it, they can't see pictures. A cartoon can be like an antibody. Think of a state like a human being, and what happens when it gets sick? In a body threatened by the viruses of corruption, abuse of power, and other menaces to democracy, cartoonists help fight the infection. With their cartoons criticizing power, keeping it in check, they help the system stay healthy. And when a pathogen agent, an authoritarian leader, a tyrant, a corrupted individual, is criticized by a cartoon, they won't respond kindly. They will not take a pencil and draw their own cartoons in response. They will, instead, use the power they have at their disposal, and one of their weapons will be the law. Defamation, contempt, sedition, national security threat, hate speech, fake news, blasphemy, terrorism. All these offenses are used to silence journalists. And among them are hundreds of cartoonists that share all the risks that belong to both the journalistic profession and the artistic one. They can be accused of being criminals, their credibility damaged, their career reduced to ashes. They can be arrested, detained for weeks, months, years. 
they can be tortured, and ultimately, they might be killed or disappear without a trace. This is how hostile governments and powerful organizations or individuals try and break their pencils. We talked about it with Porig Hughes, legal director at Media Defense, an international human rights organization which provides legal representation to journalists, citizen journalists and independent media around the world who are under threat for their reporting. The use of laws to criminalize speech or to intimidate journalists through civil claims is one of the most important methods authoritarian governments and non-state actors use to suppress journalistic work. Traditionally, this has happened primarily through the use of defamation laws. This is a particular risk for cartoonists where their work can be open to interpretation. A defamatory interpretation where the cartoonist is accused of injuring the reputation of another person through their work can result in a cartoonist defending their work in lengthy and costly civil proceedings or in a criminal court. Cartoonists are also vulnerable to allegations that through their work they have engaged in sedition, that is, encouraging people to rebel against the state, or insult directed at the monarchy, the government, or religion. States also rely on national security laws to suppress journalistic works and in doing so often submit that evidence relating to the national security issue they have identified does not require strict scrutiny by a court as it relates to sensitive matters. However, international human rights law has become increasingly influential in ensuring freedom of expression is protected from unlawful interference. The overarching international legal standards can be found in the ICCPR, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Article 19 of that treaty provides that freedom of expression includes the freedom to seek, receive and impart information and ideas of all kinds, regardless of frontiers, either orally, in writing, or, importantly in this context, in print in the form of art, or through any other medium. Subsection 3 of Article 19 provides that freedom of expression can only be lawfully or justifiably restricted in a limited number of circumstances. A, for the respect for the rights or reputation of others. B, for the protection of national security or public order, ordre public, or of public health or morals. In considering whether an interference with expression is justified, courts apply what is commonly referred to as the three-part test. One is the interference provided by law. Two, does the interference pursue a legitimate aim? And three, is the interference necessary in a democratic society, also referred to as the proportionality test? Each question is considered separately, and if a state falls down on any one of those questions, the interference will be considered to be unjustified. It is a lot of information, and technical one. But all this, as we will see, can be applied in the three stories that we are about to tell. Chapter 1. It only takes a single person. The first cartoon ever drawn by Rachita Taneja, the cartoonist that on a normal evening of 2020 learned on Twitter she was being brought to court, is directly related to how freedom of expression can crack under the weight of misused laws. Sanitary panels started as an accident, to be honest. It, was not a, it wasn't a planned project. I 
was doodling in my notebook i had read the news about students being arrested for speaking about politicians this was the drawing imagine two stick figures one stick says dude like modi sucks in the next panel that stick man is in jail Rachita drew this cartoon in 2014 to comment on a piece of law that has started being widely used to hinder press freedom. She took a picture of the cartoon and she shared it with a few people. I showed it to my brother and uh, he chuckled. Getting a chuckle from him is a big deal. So I was like, okay, let me just make a Facebook page. As a caption, she used a link to an article by The Guardian titled India Police Arrests Students Defaming Narendra Modi. Fast forward to many drawings later. Sanitary Panels, as Rachita called her Facebook page, is now a well-known webcomic trying to dispel myths around certain taboos, as the name shows, and commenting on current affairs. But, in the digital age, there is always someone watching. This time, it was a student. His name, Adetia Kashiyap. It was 2020, and Rachita had published between August and November three cartoons on a particular topic. The relationship between Modi's government, his party, Bharatiya Yanata, and the judicial system. The first mocks an exchange of favors between a judge and the Prime Minister Narendra Modi. The second shows the flag of the Hindu nationalist militia, of which the BJP is a political offshoot, flying over the Supreme Court building. And the third refers to a Supreme Court decision granting bail to a pro-BJP journalist. For Aditya, a law student and member of Modi BJP party, this was too much. After he saw the cartoon on the web, he took action. He filed an official complaint and received the authorization from the Attorney General to launch contempt proceedings against Rachita. Yeah, it was out of the blue and extremely sudden and shocking. My heart sank into my stomach for a second and then I called my lawyer immediately. I was like, okay, pull yourself together, call your lawyer friend. According to Indian law, Criminal contempt of court applies to any publication that scandalizes, lowers, or tends to lower the authority of the court. And anyone can launch contempt proceedings after receiving the attorney's general consent. Besides contempt of court, there are a number of laws that Modi's India could use to silence journalists and cartoonists. Bear with me, this list will give you a sense of what hangs on the cartoonists' heads. The first one is Section 66A of the Information Technology Act 2000, the one Rachita criticized in her very first cartoon, the one she made in 2014. This controversial law punishes offensive, false or threatening information with vague and arbitrary terms. The result is that crimes are found in innocuous online speech, including political commentary and humor. It was declared unconstitutional in 2015, but it remains a so-called legal zombie, a undead law walking. Police across the country still use it to arrest people. Notwithstanding that this provision was struck down as unconstitutional, 
its purported replacement in the form of amendments proposed by an expert committee contains the same or similar defects in the form of arbitrary and vague language. The problem with this replacement is also that the process whereby it was formulated was not transparent. Civil society is right to be wary of it, especially where some of the vague language from the unconstitutional provision remains. So basically, the law that should have replaced this legal zombie is as flawed as its predecessor. Case number two. Up until last year, Indian authorities also repeatedly censored on grounds of sedition, a law dating back to the colonial era to imprison journalists. In May 2022, the Supreme Court of India suspended the law due to misuse by the government. Here is an example of how these laws have been used. In 2012, Asim Trivedi, creator of the Cartoons Against Corruption campaign, was arrested for a series of cartoons, including one of the parliament depicted as a huge toilet bowl. He was charged both under sedition and Section 66A of the IT Act. Another section of the IT Act, number 69, gives the government powers to issue content blocking orders to online intermediaries, such as social media. In 2021, the government's power to compel to remove online content without any judicial oversight was even increased by the IT rules. This year, 2023, India amended these rules and the government has now empowered a fact-check unit of the central government to identify any fake or false or misleading information about any business of the central government. Porig summarizes the effects of this decision. So-called fact-checking social media in relation to information concerning the government is bound to have a chilling effect on cartoonists and others. The sheer number of attempts by India to silence online content is mind-blowing. Between 2014 and 2020, legal demands made by the Indian government and courts to remove content from Twitter increased by 48,000%. And in the second half of 2021, India was the country making the highest number of demands regarding accounts of verified journalists and news outlets. Cartoonists were also affected by these demands. In June 2021, Twitter's legal department notified the cartoonist Manju by email that, quote-unquote, an authorized entity, such as law enforcement or government agency, had issued a legal request against his account, claiming that the content posted violated the laws of the country. A few days later, another cartoonist, G. Bala, already arrested in 2017, received a similar notice. Rachita commented on Manjul's case, with a cartoon, of course. In the caption, she explained the case and she wrote, Political cartoonists hold a mirror to authority, and in a healthy democracy, the more power one holds, the more their actions should be scrutinized. Now, more than two years later, Rachita's own legal case is still ongoing. Chapter 2. The only cell with hot water. A mother judge was also with his family when he was arrested. Remember, 
He was driving with his wife after having posted and deleted a tweet containing a cartoon that had apparently gone too far, and a friend had called him to tell him to be prudent. I was going in my car with my wife outside of the capital Adnan, returning to my home, and we were stopped at the checkpoint by the police, and they looked very nervous. It was the first time. I thought it was an ordinary check for the uh, driving license, maybe, or something like this, but they looked very nervous, and they went, when they made sure that it's me, they asked me to move out of the car, and they just arrested me. And I was really shocked and was arguing with the police with uh, no use. They said, you have to keep silent. You are requested by the court. By the following morning, his case was before the general prosecutor of Amman. The prosecutor forwarded it to the state security court, a special military court with mostly military judges that is not independent of the executive and that, according to organizations, such as Human Rights Watch, does not meet international standards of independence and impartiality. Emad never met the prosecutor or any official other than the policeman. What is the reason a cartoonist to be facing martial court? The reason, according to the Jordanian government, is that the cartoon in question was related to the signing of an agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. The cartoon depicts a dove with the flag of Israel spitting on the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, Mohammed Ben Zayed Al Nayyan. The cartoon comments on the request by Israel to the United States not to sell F-35 fighters jets to the United Arab Emirates. It was published by Al Arabi, a pan-Arab newspaper based in London. I didn't publish this cartoon in Jordan, so it's not applicable to Jordanian law. The only thing that I did that I shared the cartoon from my newspaper website onto my local Twitter account. So this was the, the crime in our crime law, that I shared this cartoon in my local Twitter account. The fact he deleted it after being urged to do so by a friend didn't change things a bit. The state security court accused him of violating provisions of the anti-terrorism law and cybercrime law and transferred him to a prison to serve a 14-day provisional sentence. You are violating the martial law of Jordan, which uh, in brief says harming Jordan's foreign relationship with a friend country is a crime. And not only for that cartoon, the uh, Emirati-Israeli deal cartoon, they included another two cartoons that were you know, previously published or uh, shared by my Twitter account the same year. One of them was uh, about the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. I was sent to the jail by the same night. Uh, it was a horrific time for me. The first time I put in jail, the first time I spent without my family, the first time you, you see things that you see in movies, or, and now you are living them in, in real time. It was really, really difficult. In 2014, Jordan passed amendments to the anti-terrorism law of 2006, broadening the definition of terrorism, which now includes such acts as disturbing Jordan's relations with a foreign state. Exactly what Ahmad allegedly did during the dove spitting on the crown prince of Abu Dhabi's face. 
These counter-terrorism laws have been widely applied to control public discourse on foreign affairs. Between 2019 and 2022, Human Rights Watch documented 19 cases for disturbing relations with a foreign state under Article 3b, the one cited in Ahmad's case. The same accusation will later be brought up under Article 122 of the Penal Code, which again punishes insulting a foreign state. The cybercrime law was also cited as it criminalizes use of the internet or information network to carry out acts that are punishable by other legislation. This means that whoever commits any crime punishable under any applicable legislation by using the internet shall be punished with the penalty stipulated in that legislation. In this case, it allows suspected violators to be tried at the state security court. Anti-terrorism law, cybercrime law, the penal code. Are you getting confused? That's absolutely normal. All these pieces of law that use vague and broad provisions contribute to limiting press freedom in Jordan. And a new one was introduced in 2023. In July this year, Jordan's parliament approved a cybercrime bill that expands the government's powers to prosecute people accused of undermining national unity. And around the same time, the government banned the satirical website Al-Hudud after it mocked the wedding of the kingdom's crown prince. This new law, once enacted, will create a stifling atmosphere for journalistic freedom in what has been considered one of the more progressive Middle East states. Back in August 2020, Ahmad remembers very well entering the cell late at night. The guards, they're all very nervous, very angry. They deal with him very roughly. When he enters the cell, he finds three other guys sleeping. He is very lucky to be in this specific cell, the guards tell him. It is the only one with hot water. So I just tried to pick some place and, and slept the night. The other day I woke up and get to know the other guys. And again, I was thinking about my future, what's happening, uh, thinking of my children, my wife, my career. While in prison, Imad talks to his lawyer. The lawyer was not very happy. And Imad said, Imad, I don't want to make things shiny for you. You are a very, very uh, dangerous situation. You are facing three charges in the martial law of Jordan, of uh, disturbing Jordan foreign relations. This is a very serious charge. And he said, from my experience, you might get one year for each charge. So he said, prepare yourself. Yeah. So I wasn't, I'm leaving, but I'm hearing. And he said, uh, I tried to put a bail to let you out, but the military court refused the bail. Emad potentially faces up to 20 years of hard labor. Let it sink in. 20 years for a tweet. For now, he's going to spend 14 days in jail, without knowing exactly why, away from his family. Then, things suddenly change. The court announces that it is not competent to judge the case and releases the cartoonist on bail. His charges are requalified and, a few months later, in December 2020, the charges against him for contempt of a president of a foreign country against a provision of 122.1 of the Penal Code are finally dropped. 
So, a few days after entering the prison, a policeman comes, shouting his name. You are free to go, he says. And suddenly I'm out. And I met my lawyer and he was really shocked. Oh man, how did you get out? Your bail was rejected. <laughs> I don't know anything what happened. I was very happy. Everybody was happy that I was let out. Nobody knows what really happened. But after that, of course, I knew that I don't know for what reason exactly I was let out. But definitely there was an electronic storm. Many, many people in Jordan raised voice in the social media and, and many hashtags asking for my release. This is an important point. Solidarity is important. It greatly helps. Civilian solidarity, international solidarity. It creates a pressure that can help deflate a case. Ahmad was lucky in this sense. He's a very well-known cartoonist, known both in and outside the Arab world. But not all targeted cartoonists are like him. Sometimes the small ones, less famous, are targeted to send a message to the well-known that are more difficult to reach. Listening to Ahmad speaking during our conversation, you know he is not new to this job, to this world, to dealing with red lines, those invisible limits that one crosses at their own risk. He is 56 years old and he has been cartooning for more than three decades. And yet, after what he went through, he looks at those red lines a bit differently. I used to say as a cartoonist that I don't give a damn about red lines and I draw without thinking. No, I do think about them many, many times before I draw. And when I draw my cartoons these days, unfortunately, I had to tell you that sometimes I send my cartoon to my lawyer to see it, just in case <laughs> it have any problem. It's really an unfortunate situation for me as a cartoonist. I was thinking of myself of an artist growing my fame and name, and it will give me some things. It will enable me to explore new boundaries, to open new roads for other cartoonists. But no, not anymore. Red lines are there all the time. For the first time in my life, I'm thinking of leaving Jordan. Why? Because when I think of myself for the coming five years of 10 years, I will not be very optimistic. Uh, I have very good ideas. When I draw, when I do sketches, very bright ideas, but I cannot publish them. It is really frustrating for me as an artist. It is the only relief uh, for me as a human being is to draw about things that I, and you feel yourself, you cannot do that. You are not allowed and you might go to jail for this. It's really, really frustrating. It's really disappointing for me. So the only hope that I'm living for is that my cartoons are published widely outside of Jordan. In India, Rachita shares some similar concerns. Initially, I never thought that quitting would be something I would even think about, but now I think about it. Not as in, I will do it, but it is a thought that keeps crossing my mind. Like, there is still an option to quit, which is not something that I thought about before. I, again, I don't know if I will quit, but it is comforting to know that it is an option. I wouldn't allow myself to think of quitting before, but now 
I think about it as a hypothetical that it is a thing that I can do. It's not just a job to me. It is like I feel sometimes like I'm living the dream. I get to do something that I care about so much and that I that it resonates with so many people. So it makes me sad to think about the possibility or the idea that it might not be worth all of the strife. Sometimes there are just too many red lines, both offline and online. Final chapter. Touchy subjects. In Hungary, a social media shitstorm is pouring over Gabor Papai. He just published that cartoon depicting Jesus that we mentioned earlier. Pro-government media initiated a campaign of harassment against him. And the abuse comes from social media as well. A radio station asks its listeners to send in Gabor's home address, as there are many who will pay him a visit. Gabor's cartoon depicts the chief medical officer of Hungary, Cecilia Müller, next to Jesus Christ dying on the cross. The cartoon aims at criticizing the Hungarian government's handling of the pandemic. A few days before, Cecilia Müller had said that COVID-19 victims were predisposed to die because of pre-existing pathologies. In the cartoon, she looks at the crucifix, saying... His underlying condition caused addiction. The Hungarian word used for addiction, fugoseget, comes from the root fug, which means both hanging and depending. After the cartoon was published, the Christian Democratic People's Party issued a statement condemning it for provocative blasphemy, and many pro-government politicians promised to sue Gabor. The case went ahead. Imre Veike, the chairman of the Parliamentary Committee on Justice, filed a complaint triggering a lawsuit against the newspaper that published Gabor's cartoon, Nepsava, one of the last remaining opposition dailies. Nepsava and Gabor won the case in the first instance, but later the Budapest Metropolitan Court convicted the newspaper for the publication of the cartoon, finding that the cartoon infringed the Imre's Veike right to human dignity in connection with his membership of the Christian community. Gabor and his newspaper appealed to the Hungarian Supreme Court, but the court confirmed the verdict. Essentially, the different actors of power converge here. It is not a coincidence that my plaintiff is the chairman of the Justice Committee of the Hungarian National Assembly. We are talking about Imre Veke, a Christian Democrat politician who is simultaneously a participant in the lawsuit, representing one side, And on the other side, he is also the creator of the law, so essentially capable of creating laws in his own interest. I simplify this a lot now, but basically many amendments have been made to this constitution, so they simply bend the law in order to win their current cases. The constitution Gabor refers to, the fundamental law of Hungary, was introduced in 2011 by the government of Viktor Orban. After the elections in 2010, Horban had enough seats to change the constitution. The provision cited in Gabor's case is paragraph 5 of Article 9, introduced with the following amendment, which reads The right to freedom of expression may not be exercised with the aim of violating the dignity of the Hungarian nation 
or of any national, ethnic, racial or religious community. Persons belonging to such communities shall be entitled to enforce their claims in court against the expression of an opinion which violates their community, invoking the violation of their human dignity, as provided for by an act. In the first instance, we won the case. The court ruled that we have the right to express such an opinion. However, the Supreme Court reversed this decision and stated that our freedom of speech must bow to their right to personal dignity based on their religion. So there was a clash between two constitutional rights and their right to personal dignity tied to their religion took precedence over our freedom of speech. Gabor's cartoon was a contribution to a necessary debate on a crucial public interest matter, how to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. It reflected comments made by a key figure in the government dealing with that issue and did so consistent with the best traditions of cartooning. A key principle underpinning the European Court of Human Rights approach to freedom of expression is that everyone is entitled to shock, offend or disturb. That freedom is being eroded in Hungary to serve a political purpose. After the ruling of the Metropolitan Court of Budapest, Nepzava had to pay the equivalent of 1,140 euros in damages, reimburse legal costs and publish an apology The court sentenced us to publish the correction in the same form and place as the original image appeared. But since it was a caricature, we decided to present the correction in the form of a caricature as well. So in the place of the caricature, a large text bubble appeared in the newspaper, in which I literally wrote the court's verdict as they demanded. But technically, it was still a caricature. So the representatives of the Christian Democratic Party were very annoyed. And they said it was actually mocking the verdict. But legally, it was invulnerable. So they did not file another lawsuit against it. Nipzawa has now appealed to the European Court of Human Rights. Gabor's case was triggered by a cartoon criticizing the way the Hungarian government was handling the pandemic. And the pandemic in itself was a trigger of the new legislations and government actions to target and threaten cartoonists. Similar to how governments reacted to what they call the global war on terror, the period at the beginning of the pandemic saw states introduce new laws and repurpose existing laws to restrict freedom of expression. In Bangladesh, China and Egypt, people were detained for writing about the pandemic. In the UK and other states, new legislation was introduced that gave the police exceptional powers of surveillance. Russia enacted a law censoring discussion of the government's handling of the pandemic. In Romania, the government introduced an emergency decree that allowed them to block websites arbitrarily. Three stories from three completely different countries, and yet with so many commonalities. Rachita, Emad, and Gabor's brushes with the law can be connected to one thing we said earlier. When there is an interference with freedom of expression, we should ask ourselves. One, is the interference provided by law? Two, does the interference pursue a legitimate aim? And three, Is the interference necessary in a democratic society, meaning the proportionality test? In Rashida's case, through her cartoons, she was engaging in political speech, a 
a form of speech which receives heightened protection under international law. Her prosecution is unlikely to be considered either necessary or proportional in a democratic society. Imad was also engaging in political speech and entitled to rely on heightened protection in that context. In addition, the use of the criminal law against him is contrary to the requirement that states act proportionally when interfering with speech. In Gabor's case, the legislation being used to prosecute him could be considered not to comply with the first limb of the three-part test. On the basis the legislation lacks the quality of law, that is, it offends the rule of law which underpins democratic societies. Ultimately, we found ourselves in front of the final oxymoron, a figure of speech in which apparently contradictory terms appear in conjunction. Porig just said it. Let's close this episode repeating it. Exploring these three stories of cartoonists prosecuted with weaponized law, we face legislation that lacks the quality of law. Legislation that offends the rule of law. Tough Love is produced by Emanuele Del Rosso and Federica Testi and written by Federica Testi. Research by Federica Testi and Zahara Salauden, read by me, Emanuele Del Rosso. Sound design by James Hodgson. Gabor Papai's voiceover is by Peter Krohn. This episode of Tough Love, Tough Law is supported by Cartooning for Peace and UNESCO GMDF and Isocrates Foundation. Special thanks to Sylvain Platevoud of Cartooning for Peace for his editorial support. You can find the sources in the description of the episode.